Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. At Founders Brewing Company, we set out to create a beer that lets you embrace the unconventional. Mortal Bloom is a radiantly beautiful, hazy IPA that will wrap your taste buds with intense citrus and tropical notes of pineapple and mango. Coming in at 6.2% ABV with big aromatics and no bitterness, it's the perfect beer, if we do say so ourselves. Visit foundersbrewing.com to find Mortal Bloom Hazy IPA. Hi. It's July 20th, 2022, and this is an encore episode of an ology I personally love. I don't love beer, actually, but I love this ology. So it's a great and often overlooked episode. So I'm taking a week to plan your grandpa's burial and funeral and taking a little bit of a break. I thought you might enjoy just a hot ep about cold beers. Get to do it. I love you. Oh, hey. Hi there, it's your weird step-cousin, Allie Ward, rumbling up to the family barbecue in a Trans Am and offering you your first room-temperature beer. Are you ready to get yeasty? Okay, good. So this episode touches on something that is all over and inside you, devouring your garbage. Single-celled fungus that covers every surface of the planet. Yeast. It's also in beer. And I got a hot tip by being alive, that people like beer. And so on a recent trip to Portland, I was very generously chauffeured through the woods and to the shore on a road trip by the wonderful sister duo and my own personal merch queens, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch. And they had an inn at Rogue Brewery in Newport, Oregon. I got a tour and I sat down to chat with a microbiologist and food scientist about zymology the study and science and practice of fermentation, people, which is how you take a sack of grain and water and turn it into dad's wash-away-the-workday elixir. Now, before I take you on a quick tour, I want to confess two things. Number one, I used to pour beer on myself as a child in the shower. More on that in a minute. Number two, I read all your reviews on iTunes, and I silently thank each and every one of you. So this podcast is a 100% independently made. A lot of people, I guess, didn't know that. So listeners pay to keep it going through life-sustaining Patreon donations at patreon.com slash ologies, and also by buying merch at ologiesmerch.com, and also for supporting for free by rating and reviewing and subscribing on iTunes, which boosts it in the charts. It helps the podcast get seen by other people. So we've remained in the top 30 or so science podcasts totally independently on iTunes since September. And last week, Ologies broke its own download record. It truly means the world to me. And this project is my favorite thing I've ever worked on. So I love that you guys love the show and are spreading the word. So each week I read a snippet of a review that really made my day. And Elise1021 said, I love this podcast so much. Some episodes I start listening to and have no interest in the topic. And by the end, I'm so fascinated and intrigued. For example, 
I almost skipped ichthyology because fish, who cares? And that was my favorite episode to date. Okay, back to cymology. So the word comes from the Greek naturally for the workings of fermentation. It's pretty straightforward. Zymo. And Louis Pasteur was the first zymologist. He was the first person to get the yeasts were making fermentation happen. Oh, also, the reason I showered myself in course as a child is because beer was supposed to make hair shiny, and I had llama hair, and even my parents were like, sure, man, try it. Do whatever you gotta do. And it didn't work. And to be honest, I've never really loved beer. But I have mad respect for the craft of it and the bubbly, yeasty science of it, and I'm fascinated by the history and the role that beer plays in good old American culture. So I visited this brewery to find out how beer is made in both small and big scale batches and to chat with someone who's truly deeply knowledgeable about tiny funguses. So amid some forklift beeping and tasting room hollering in the background, we walked through a maze of like these 20 foot metal tanks storing and fermenting beers. That's a lot of brewskis, dude. We learned some basics. I don't know if you how familiar you are with home brewing? No, okay. none, zero. That's basically all the CO2 blow off. So as it's oh. fermenting, it's bubbling out. Yeah. So that's where it burps and farts? Yeah, pretty much. I sniffed some yeasts. That's some ripe business. And I learned that the staff of this brewery gets to pick their own titles. So I was told this by a guy named Jake, who is technically Rogue's level 10 spirits wizard. It's on his business card. He showed me a warehouse of aging whiskeys and charred oak barrels. And we won't get into that much in this episode, but I will leave you with a takeaway from him that the opening of a barrel of aging spirits is called the bunghole and they smell delicious. I want a scented candle in the, in, yeah. in the flavor of bunghole. Then our group checked out the yeast lab and sat down to a very mellow tasting. Am I going to get blitzed or what? Finally, we went in for the interview and talked about the history of cold ones and how beer goes from a slurry of wet fungus in a bucket to a refreshing, cool friend in a bottle. And the grossest things you can culture and make into beers. Uh, there's some homebrewing tips some food science triumphs, and some early names for light beer that just didn't quite cut it. So get ready to tip back this refreshing episode with zymologist Quentin Sturgeon. first name's John, actually. So I go by my middle name. Uh, oh, okay. So yeah, my full name is John Quentin Sturgeon. It's not a weak name by any means. No, it's but. not. Tell me what your title is here. Uh, QAQC manager or lead, um, but my actual title is Minister of Truth. Did you get to pick that? Uh, it was actually, yeah, but it was kind of given to me. They're like, yeah, you should just you don't have a filter, so Minister of Truth. Is it is it kind of like a tribal name, where it's given to you based on your characteristics? Um, you know, most people pick them themselves. So it's like a okay. self-given nickname, and it wasn't. Well, it wasn't given to me. Somebody actually mentioned it. So every time you're wrong, does that really come back to bite you? Uh, well, I just don't ever be wrong. Oh. But no, no, of course, uh, doesn't mean I'm correct. It means I'm just telling the truth as best I know it. 
Your truth. <laughs> My version of the truth, yes. <laughs> now, tell me about your degrees. What did you study? How long did you study it? Yeah, so uh, my bachelor's was in food science at University of Idaho, and then I made the epic eight-mile trek across state border <laughs> to Washington State and got a master's in food science. What does that entail, getting a master's in food science? <laughs> um, a laborious project that includes everything from sensory to microbiology, um, a lot of biochemistry. Um, I had to resurrect an old HPLC. What's an HPLC? It's a high-performance liquid chromatography machine. Okay. So Quentin has two degrees in food science, one a master's that involved analyzing amino acids in wine fermentation, but he had a history with beer and began home brewing at 19 in his fraternity's kitchen. And he's a burly dude. He's very Pacific Northwest. He's like wearing a hoodie. He's got a beard, those Carhartt's pants and a battered ball cap. And Quentin's worked in wheat genetics, cheese, wine, beer, kombucha, all involving, in his words, one cell critters that nobody cares about. But hello, hi, if you like cheese and beer, you have to care about these critters. They are so important. So yeast are indeed single-celled fungi, and it wasn't until the late 1800s, after Louis Pasteur, that we even knew that a living organism, a fungus, was instrumental in brewing and baking bread. And we put some shit under microscopes. We were like, whoa, huh? Well, what do you look at that? Now, a common brewer's yeast to make ales in particular is a single round smooth, flat cell, and it's kind of a cream color. It's called Saccharomyces cerevisia, Cerve mm, something like that, which translates to sugar fungus of beer. So not unlike Minister of Truth, it's a good title. So what is happening? Can you walk me through what fermentation is? Like, just pretend I'm an alien that just landed on a spaceship. And my first question is like, how y'all make booze? Yeah, well, basically, you can uh, chew something up and spit it into a bucket. Okay. Or <laughs> um, really, it, it's the conversion of sugar and starch. Well, starch goes to sugar uh, into ethanol and carbon dioxide. And that is done by introducing a little tiny single-celled critter? Yep. One-celled little fungi, Saccharomyces. And we like to use Saccharomyces cerevisiae because it's more consistent and not nearly as temperamental and pissy as all the other yeast strains. So that's why you see that Saccharomyces cerevisiae um, as the go-to yeast. Is that for wine and for it's beer? For wine and beer, and but they spirits. are different strains. So how do you choose which strain to use? So that's actually, that was uh, what I did after grad school. Um, that was 90% of my job was because all, there's all sorts of yeast vendors out there. All these vendors have all this yeast. You don't know what is sales and marketing and what's true. Do you have to culture them and see what eats what and what the byproducts are and um, what temperatures they can withstand? Stuff kind like of. That? Uh, basically, the best way to do it, if you're going to be doing like, I think I did 150-something strains when I was there in just over a year, mm -hmm. um, in triplicate with little bioreactors that are temperature controlled, you take sterile juice. And you dump in the exact amount of yeast three times, mm -hmm. and then you ferment it, and you track everything you can chemically uh, before and after and during, and then you try it at the end, and basically that's it, because you worked off the same juice for all those yeast strains, you've got the same baseline, and all right, this one was farty. That one's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's farty is a term. It's is it really? Yeah, hydrogen sulfide, H2S. Yeah, it, it is a nasty, it, it smells like fart. And wait, do you use that term professionally, like this one? I have. Farty? Uh, it depends on 
how lax the panel would be. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, everything from rotten cabbage, uh, sewer drain. Oh, yeah, sensory terms get fun. Uh, yeah. There and you how, do you t- how do you... Baby vomit is one that... Baby vomit is baby another. Vomit. When you're fermenting something and it smells like baby vomit or cabbage farts or whatever... Mm-hmm. Are you making notes on on smell and compounds? Are you analyzing them through your own senses or a combination of like chemical determinants and your senses? Mm-hmm. Uh, both. So, okay. I mean, the human knows, unless you can relate it in sensory terms, it's useless. Right. You tell somebody, all right, cool, you have X and X milligrams per liter of vanillin. Well, vanillin's one that, okay, no, vanilla. All right, right. That's pretty simple. But you say isofluoric acid. Yeah. Yeah, what the hell's that? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's just it. Or, like, yeah, some of these terms, when they get just down to chemicals, I don't know, what the hell does that mean? And, or where did that come from? How do I control it? Is it a good or a bad thing? It gets way too complex when you just do on the chemistry. Um, so you focus it down into flavor buckets and just make it easy. But sensory, I don't know, your nose is still amazing. And if you can train yourself to be as good of a machine as possible, setting yourself up pretty well. Side note, isn't it weird how you smell something and it usually reminds you of your past in some way? Like, if you huff a perfume your freshman year of college, like, forget about it. Like, you are a slave to nostalgia for the rest of the day. So why is that? Why does that happen? So I looked it up and smell is linked intimately to parts of the brain that deal with emotion. So you have an olfactory bulb... That's part of the limbic system. That includes the amygdala and the hippocampus of the brain. Those also deal with memory, learning, and your emotions. So in order to identify a smell, you may find that first you have to figure out what does this remind me of before you can figure out what the smell is. So humans have about 6 million olfactory receptors, and scientists recently learned that we can smell up to a trillion smells. But your dog, see your dog over there? Your dog has not 6 million, 300 million compared to our 6 million. So every butt sniff is like Shakespeare to them. I would now like you to imagine a dog in a lab coat because as a food scientist, sniffing stuff, in this case yeast, super important. Dogs would be excellent at this. So when you applied for this particular job, did you come in saying, I have a lot of experience testing yeast and they were like, we need you on our team? Uh, it was, I have enough jack of all trades background mm-hmm. <laughs> to be able to do something like this. Um, but yeah, a ton of lab and micro experience. So it was like, cool, we can shove this guy in there and leave him alone. What's your day to day job like? Oh God. Uh, it is literally one third microbiology, one third chemistry and one third sensory. Um, and then trying to make sure we don't kill anybody by making beer <laughs> or exploding no. bottles and that kind of stuff. So if you have the chemistry wrong, your mm-hmm. bottles will explode? Not so much the chemistry, the microbiology, because okay. then you've got uh, potential for secondary fermentation. So when you pop that top, you might shoot a cap into the ceiling or it will just build up so much pressure that the glass itself will shatter. And then, yeah, that, I mean, that's the worst, worst, worst case scenario. I don't know if that happening here, so that's that's good. <laughs> Can you walk me through the basics of, like, in an absolute nutshell, mm-hmm. how is beer made? So malt is the sugar source, we, or starch, convert starch into mm-hmm. sugars, which the yeast, which we then later add, uh, chomps up and converts through its own metabolism uh, from glucose and sucrose and maltose into ethanol and carbon dioxide. So then you get basically beer is yeast, farts, and piss. 
and, and other flavorings. Okay, how much do you already love this guy? Now, I'm going to recap and give you some basics because I had to look this up after our interview and after the tour because I still didn't get it. I'm going to break it down. You're about to understand how beer is made. Are you ready? You're never going to look at beer the same way again. And next time you're at a barbecue and you have nothing to talk to anyone about, you can just tell them this. Okay, cool. So grain, like barley or wheat, is malted. And malted means it's germinated just a wee bit, and then it's kilned or heated, and that stops the germination. So doing that, germinating it and heating it, breaks down some starch into sugar. And next, it's milled or crushed so that the starches are more accessible, and they're easily broken down. Water is then added, and when it's added, it's called a mash, mashing. It's added to this big tank called a mash tun, and it's mixed with hot water, and that activates the enzymes in the grain. That helps turn them from starch into sugar, and it makes this syrupy, sweet liquid called wort. And the wort is separated from all the solids left over in the grain in a process called laudering so many terms. So the wort is then boiled for a few hours, which sterilizes it, and hops are added, giving it some bitterness, some essential oils, some flavor. And this mix is whirlpooled to collect any solids, and then it's cooled down. And finally, after malting, milling, warding, mashing, after all of that, it's ready for fungus. It's fungus o'clock. This is called pitching. Now, the cooled down wort, it's put in this big fermenter tank and yeast is added and it ferments anywhere from a few days to a month, depending on the beer. And the type of yeast will also determine if it's an ale or a lager. I did not know that. Fermentation really, in the bulk of it, actually happens in the first 72 hours. But generally, we have tank times that range anywhere from 8 days to 20 plus days. Okay. And there are hoses that run out the carbon dioxide and it sounds kind of like a rhino farting in a bathtub. Oh, that gurgle is very soothing. And now you has beers. Almost. And then basically you remove the yeast if you want. And so you get a clear product, a more stable product because of all sorts of biochemistry. Um, but it is much more stable than it was before the yeast took effect. And, and then so carbonate it up for some good mouthfeel and fizz. And there you go. That's beer. It is simple. So you carbonate it after the fact? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a good portion of the carbonation will come from natural fermentation, mm -hmm. but not enough. It's not that lively bubble pain, bubble break that you experience with beer, uh, mm -hmm. where soda has so much more carbonation. Yeah. Because you do that. That's a term. is bubble pain. Um, and it's, you feel those like pop rocks, right? Exploding on your tongue. Yeah. That's the kind of thing. As a person who's literally drinking a LaCroix right now and trying not to burp into the microphone, I was greatly enthused about bubble pain as a term. And I looked it up giddily. And carbonation does thrill us because it triggers pain receptors on the tongue, the same ones that respond to like wasabi. Now, some people hate carbonation because it just hurts. They're like, no. But I couldn't find much mention of the specific term bubble pain. I looked it up. I was like, I thought this was a term until I came across an article about it. But it was published by a researcher at Quentin's alma mater. So it's possible that this term is super common to Quentin in the way that, as a Northern Californian, I thought everyone said hella all the time. 
And so you have to strain off the yeast when you're done fermenting it to where you want it. You use a centrifuge for that? We use our centrifuge, yeah, uh, to just get rid of it. And it clarifies the crap out of that beer. Uh, more typical, you'll see uh, a filter beforehand or after to really clarify it. And we do pretty well with our centrifuge, and we just run with that. What happens to the yeast once you're like, later days, thanks? Uh, it goes into a tote and then into a, a dump vessel. Uh, but that's not to say that we haven't pulled off yeast before that. Uh, mm -hmm. And we will reuse that yeast over and over. Oh. And so once we start with a little bit, it will grow and grow and grow. Many, many babies. Uh -huh. And we harvest that off and use it again. What does it look like? Is it like a murky? I imagine something that looks like murky yellow whale blubber. That's, I mean, so... So you're holding up a bottle of beer, so it's kind yeah. of the, it's kind of that murky precipitate in there. Yeah, yeah. It just looks muddy, murky, and hazy. Just kind of all sorts of no good. And do different beers use different yeasts, or do you use that one, do you use that one species and genus, but a different strain for, say, a lager or IPA? Um, so yeah, we use anywhere from five to upwards of whatever test batches we're doing of random idea beers, um, strains here at, at Rogue. Uh, Pac-Man is the one we use by far and away. It is a workhorse of a yeast. It can just power through a huge amount of sugar. But yeah, we definitely use them because they do different things. Um, you know, some are more phenolic, more band-aid, more spice notes. Some are more fruity. Uh, others are just clean and neutral. And sometimes you want that. It really depends on the style and what you're trying to go for in the finished product. So Pac-Man is the name of a special proprietary strain that Rogue uses for a bunch of their beers. And it's supposed to be really robust and reliable. People love this. I looked online and some people try to use the dregs of other rogue beers to culture their own Pac-Man batch. And one message board I looked at said this, Pac-Man is the most forgiving yeast ever. I had to pitch some slurry that just finished a cider ferment as an emergency measure, and it still got like 80% attenuation in an all-grain wart. What? Okay, so thanks to Quentin, I kind of know what the that jargon casserole of a sentence means. So you can buy yeasts, you can try to culture them from other beers, or if you're like some wild animals, you can just wait for fruit to rot. Evidently, moose and elk eat fallen apples and they stumble around a bit. They get a little crazy. And some monkeys will eat fermented fruit and just lose it. Elephants, however, seem to be apocryphal drinkers. It's more legend than lit because it would take so much fruit to get them drunk. But if you've ever brewed kombucha at home or wanted to, the yeast and bacteria form this symbiotic colony. It looks like a slimy pancake or a flap of skin from a dead stingray. And essentially, all you need to do is convince a hippie to give you some of their mother slop and you dump it in a bucket of tea and sugar and boom, a few weeks later, you have an expensive bucket of fizzy vinegar tea. I've done this and it filled the void in my life where a pet or an alien in the cupboard should be. It tastes good, but it looks like a nightmare. Do you ever dream about yeast? I haven't lately. Uh, you have? I have, yeah. I mean, I've got a stuffed yeast on my desk. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeasty. He's a uh, stuffed one million size, times size of a Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And he's got droopy little eyes, and he's got budding scars on the head. Well, I guess she. We call them mother cells and daughter cells, but mm -hmm. yeah, yeasty. Um, when I was separated, or not separated, but my wife was cross-country. Um, I was interning in California, and she was working in New York. I sent that to her as a care package, Aww. and she kept it and held it like <laughs> every night. 
<laughs> which you know <laughs> seems really really weird i guess i'm just that level of nerd but um i did propose to her after we saw each other that summer so really summer. yeah 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 and it was part of your wooing you're like here's a stuffed yeast think about me yeah that's cute thinking about it that's kind of weird no it's adorable <laughs> Did you grow things and culture things when you were a kid? What kind of kid were you? Uh, no, I definitely. I had a microscope. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of like, well, these are like really funny names and hard to remember. Mm. I wasn't all that interested in it, <laughs> to be honest. I don't know. Um, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do going in. Well, in high school. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mowed lawns. I mean, I paid for my undergrad by mowing lawns. Did so, you really? Oh, yeah. I was like 11 years old. My dad's like, hey, you're going to pay for college. So right there, it says two things aside. Number one, I'm going to college. Mm-hmm. That's not an option to not. And I was going to pay for it. So, all right, cool. 11-year-old walks across the street, starts mowing lawns. Where did you put all the money? Into a banking account? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Just oh. straight savings and, yeah. It's kind of crazy. Were you, are your parents proud of what you do? I think so. That sound in the background is a level 10 spirits wizard cackling. At Quentin. Yeah. Your buddy's laughing at you. I, know. Uh, I don't know. I haven't heard, like, we're proud of you, son. You get everyone drunk. <laughs> you make the world a better place. I'm so proud of you. But you uh, have a laboratory. I do. I do. And a master's. <laughs> and a master's degree. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they have anything to... I think they're more proud of my the grandkids I've given them. Does your, did your wife wish that she could just butt off a baby? Like a yeast? Um, yeah. She, pregnancy was rough. That's yeah. not... It wasn't fun. She had to deliver the, like a champ. But, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well. Like, poster child. But... <laughs> but, uh, no, pregnancy was was rough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, was beer helpful afterward? Some beers She's are not a big drinker. She's not... Your wife is not a big She's drinker? She's not a big drinker. Uh, when she does, it's more the sour tart stuff, which, I mean, she can peel and eat a lemon. Well, I, I know that's the face I make when she does it. Uh, it's like ah, it's unbelievable, <laughs> good God! I just hear your enamel screaming. Uh, but no, so, I mean, this, we started making a Paradise Pucker, which is a sour uh, base, and she loves that beer. <laughs> but she's just not a huge drinker, so yeah, there's More that. For you. I know, right? <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you some questions from listeners. Is that sure. cool? Yeah. Okay. Because there's approximately one million of them. This is a rapid fire round. But before your questions, let's toss back some money to a charity of the ologist choosing. And this week, it's going to the Rogue Foundation, which since its inception has donated millions of dollars to charity, including acts like donating all the Juneteenth pub sales to the Coalition of Communities of Color. They donated beer to Project Pooch and the Oregon Zoo and the Newport Symphony. They renovated a skate park in Polson, Montana, where I happen to have many relatives. Hey, Polson. Uh, and Rogue Foundation has also sponsored beach and riverside cleanups and a bunch more. So we will make a donation to them thanks to sponsors of the show, which you may hear about now. This podcast and my life is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you know that I didn't have a website for forever because I was putting it off because I was scared? And then I heard another podcast talk about Squarespace. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. I had a website up that day. They have beautiful templates. They host. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Look at me. Even I did it. You can sell products. You can sell your time. They have this guided design system. It's called Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from a layout. There are styling options. You can get your 
your website discovered with these integrated, optimized SEO tools so people find you when they Google. They also have easy-to-use payment tools, so checkout, very easy for customers, which is what you want. There's also Squarespace AI, which can help you explain what your site is about. You can choose your tone. Whether you're a scientist who wants to share your work with the world, whether you are starting up a business selling tiny paintings of tiny books, or a choreographer selling dance classes, head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends, even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. You know what's essential to science? It's not a lab coat, it's skepticism. You know me, I'm down rabbit holes, I'm looking at charts, I'm checking conflicts of interest at the bottom of published papers. And this is helpful because it means I don't buy stuff I don't need. And if you're one of me that can spot a too good to be true health hack from like a mile away and you read labels like it's your job, congrats, you're a skeptic. One brand of vitamins that is literally made for us is called Ritual. It's a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. They have clinically backed essential for women 18 plus. It has high quality, traceable ingredients. They're in clean, 
bioavailable forms. They're also a certified B Corp, female founded. Just today, one of my powerhouse friends was like, ah, found out I'm vitamin D deficient. I was like, yo, ritual, dude. When I forget my multivitamins, there's much less pep in my step. I have noticed. They're also very beautiful. They look like tiny lava lamps with little tiny beads in them. There's actually a scientific reason for this, but I got to wrap it up. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Get that D. Okay, your curiosity is a Bruin. Greg wants to know any secret yeasts that might make for better fermenting beers? Uh, try everything you can from wherever you can get it. Um, there's a lot of places at homebrew stores. Um, that Or try culturing your own. See what's growing out in it. Yeah, see what, see what happens. What's the worst? You just make a terrible batch of beer and then you dump it, clean everything and start over. Well, how do you know that you even have yeast? You just put you put the wort out and see what happens? Well, there, I mean, a couple of steps. Like You can easily get stuff to get your own Petri dish set okay. up and just to start culturing. I mean, you can be into it for less than 50 bucks. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, okay. you just need a couple of glassware and you just make a small little batch of wort. Set it out in an orchard or something like that and throw it on some dishes. Um, and there's some technique to it, but it's not impossible. Wow. DIY and yeast. Um, it's a thing. Bob Ogden wants to know, when and where did hops come from in brewing? Are hops used for any other purpose? Do we even use hops? What are hops doing the rest of the time? Uh, good question. Uh, well, I guess they're kind of an offshoot of uh, hemp. Oh. And so I believe they were at one point used for rope along, along those lines. I, they're also like a subset of like pot. Really? I think, I think they're somehow related to marijuana, but I don't. You're going to have to fact check me on that one. Side note. So hops, a.k.a. humulus lupulus, humulus lupulus. I think that's what they're called. And marijuana are indeed related, but instead of getting you all stony baloney, hops were cultivated for use in beer as early as the ninth century because they have these acids and essential oils that prevent spoilage. They also give beer that traditional bitter taste that a lot of people who are not me like. Is now an okay time to tell you I've never finished a beer? I've no maybe once I finished a beer. I've started a lot of beers. But I really appreciate the craftsmanship. Adrian McNichols wants to know, is it true that stouts and porter are good sources of dietary item, i.e. is my beer health food? There was a guy who lived off nothing but Guinness for a month. Really? And it's totally doable. Yeah. Uh, especially unfiltered because you have the pro and prebiotics of yeast. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, you people have done it. It's got a ton of nutrients in there. Uh, it's got to be doing something weird to your system after a while. Uh, Did he take a sabbatical from pooping? What was the deal there? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. It's like when you're on a juice diet, you're not getting a lot of fiber that way. Yeah, that's it, a good point. It's all pure liquid. Interesting. So, yeah. Who I mean, was this guy? Was this someone you knew or was this just oh, a no. guy? Oh, no. This is not Larry from my freshman year. No, okay. I, I, I've, <laughs> I had heard this. And this was like, this, I don't know. It, it, oh, it's I'll a thing. Oh, yeah. I'll look it up. Okay, so the Guinness diet is a thing. And though I found accounts of one super devout Christian slash beer lover giving up food in favor of beer for 40 days of Lent, I guess he was inspired by monks, he did not seem to be drinking Guinness per se. So with a Guinness diet, with a stout, you'd need to drink 47 pints of Guinness a day to get your caloric needs met. This was calculated by a 
170-pound dude who tried it. Plus, to fulfill your daily nutritional requirements, you would need to drink a glass of orange juice for vitamin C and two glasses of milk for calcium. So I looked up records of people who have tried this, and one account, which ran in a newspaper article in the Sonoma Sun, contained a diary from which I will read an excerpt. Day three. At one point, after enough people told me that I look like I'm dying, it all became clear. I know what hell is. Hell is a giant party where you can drink all the Guinness you want, but only your friends can eat the delicious feast, and they will laugh at you, and they will constantly make comments like, you look like you're dying. Another man tried the Guinness diet and reported that after having a couple of lunch beers, quote, my stomach was starting to make noises comparable to the dragons on Game of Thrones. Now, it should be noted that both dudes who wrote their trials up of this broke down around day four or five and ravenously purchased and bought candy bars. One was a Snickers and one was a Mars bar. So unless you are deeply alcoholic or religious, you may want to just do like slim fast or step up the cardio, buddy. Caitlin Thomas wants to know, why does beer have to have so many carbs? <laughs> uh, well, that's the whole idea between a light and beer, right? You're trying to get those carbs out. Um, it's just a matter of what you use as your sugar source and what's going to be left over. The yeast is not going to consume. And so that's, and it's one of those factors. If you want to have less carbs in your beer, um, you got to use a yeast strain and set it up that it's going to ferment out pretty dry. But at the same time, carbs are a complete balance of all the other flavors. So without carbs, you're just going to have a boozy, watered-down unbalanced hot mess mm. um yeah like that is totally um they're necessary i mean it's the sugar it's all the sweet and a lot of the malty biscuit flavor it's all from the malt and the so carbs do light beers have they been fermenting longer or do they just add water to a regular beer um it's a different sugar source so it ferments out cleaner and so okay. you end up having just more ethanol and more CO2, so it's more efficiently converted. Okay. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other technology into it, but I mean, so that's why it was a big thing when it hit the market. Uh, I think Miller Lite was the first one. Yeah. I said, yeah, like I knew what he was talking about, but I did not know. However, after doing some light Googling, I have learned that this beer, Miller Lite, was invented in 1967, but was originally called Gablinger's Diet Beer. So they tweaked the marketing because, I mean... It was pretty revolutionary to actually be able to have a beer around 100 calories. Right. I love that, like, Michelob Ultras, like, <laughs> if you like CrossFit and beer. You're like, okay. It's like, no, Just I'm sorry, those, you don't exist. <laughs> um, Brittany uh, Crisera wants to know, what ingredient is it that makes the yeast occasionally go seemingly crazy and foam up and explode during first fermentation? Asking for a friend. Also, do you have any tips for new brewers or book recommendations? Yeah, um, so that explosive early fermentation, we have it. I mean, we'll blow over our uh, tubs, and we use 55 gallon drums as our blow off but it, it depends largely on how much protein was in the initial fermentation and then how much yeast they added if they added just too much your fermentation just went crazy and those, that yeast is just really 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 active uh, so there's a couple ways to get around that is get a bigger vessel so all that foam breaks off or just stays in the in the vessel um, or don't add as much yeast or Keep it in a bathtub with some ice. Chill it down. Because, ah. I mean, during fermentation, there's a lot of heat generated as well. Mm -hmm. So you have to chill that down. Uh, otherwise, it will just run off and is go it, real fast. Is it better to homebrew if you're new at it during the winter months than in the summer? Oh, I don't know. If you've got a... 
inkling to do it at all, just do it. But I mean, as far as going back to uh, the tips for homebrewers, sanitation, mm. got to be clean. And if you think you're clean, do it again. <laughs> I've, I've had so much bad homebrew because they didn't clean something properly or they, oh, well, no, I just ran bleach through it. No, that's no, a no. You're that's, shaking well, your head. Well, it's just not enough. I mean, you got to do it right. What happens if you don't brew it clean? Does it start to, does the wrong thing ferment? Does it smell yeah. skunky? Okay. <laughs> so you've set yourself up for any and everything to have access to all that sugar, all those free amino, nice, uh, amino acids, and they're going to go crazy. Um, and so that's why Saccharomyces cerevisiae was started to use because it's such an active fermenter. It'll just attack and it'll drive out and out compete most other things um so that's why it's really really beneficial to use a good healthy yeast but sanitation yeah it's kind of key because you don't want like an acetobacter you, a what acetobacter makes acetic acid oh which is vinegar yeah. <laughs> uh or like a lactic acid bacteria or pediococcus which makes lactic acid it's not as tart but it still will ruin a beer and it's like sour milk it is Pediococcus. Pediococcus. It's on my shit list. Get (laughs) out of here, Pediococcus. Yeah. Uh, Are you clean at home? Are you a neat freak at home? Are you like I'm not? No. Like the worst is the kitchen sink, and my wife will rip. She does totally rip me anyone, and it is the dirtiest place in your house. Oh, say it isn't so. No. Ugh. Okay, so I have often heard and feared this about kitchen sinks, and I had to look it up well. And according to Dr. Charles Gerba, one microbiologist who's been studying invisible American domestic filth for decades, your sink and sponge are like Bonnaroo, a witch's brew of fecal bacteria, protozoans, and viruses. So he says that that the cleanest looking kitchens are often the dirtiest because clean people wipe up so frequently. It's like painting a swath of bacteria like Bob Ross laying down the background of a gorgeous landscape. Now, amusingly, some of the cleanest kitchens, Dr. Gerba claims, are in the homes of bachelors who rarely wipe up their countertops. He says in most cases, it's safer to make a salad on a toilet seat than it is to make one on a cutting board. So what are we supposed to do? Uh, Well, you can either microwave your sponge for a few minutes and kill all that stuff, or you can survive off beer and Snickers. I'm going to leave it up to you. But in your lab... Oh, in the lab, yeah, that's a completely different story. So I get all my neat freak out of my system here (laughs) and then go home and just like a slob. Oh, God, that would drive me crazy. (laughs) Because it's be like, I know you have a master's in science. Like, I know you know how to wash these dishes. Uh, Megan Gerard wants to know, I heard that we have found ancient civilizations had beer recipes. Do mm-hmm. we know if that was because they couldn't prevent it? Like, there was no refrigeration? Or did they do it on purpose? Are they any good? Ancient beer, I understand, was because the water was so disgusting that they're like, we got to have this stuff that has alcohol in it so mm-hmm. it can kill the bacteria. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, you actually do really... Um you help yourself out from you killing like things like Enterobacter, uh, E. coli. Side note, them bacteria is poo. That kind of stuff because it can't survive in that low pH. It can't survive with a little bit of alcohol in there. Um, hops were added way after the fact. I mean, we're talking beer 4,000 years old at least. Mm-hmm. We haven't known what the hell we were doing except until Pasteur came by. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, this is not just God blessing you with this alcohol. It's No, it's yeast. It's... Yeast, pissing, farts. That, that's what you get. <laughs> Little tiny single cell farts. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but I don't know. I, I have heard of some people trying to recreate really ancient beers and then kind of being 
so-so. Yeah. But you're also kind of like, I don't really know how they did it. Okay. So a little beer history. It could have been invented up to 10,000 years ago when agriculture was first starting out around Mesopotamia and bread yeasts were fermented into this drinkable, potable, I guess I use that loosely, concoction. So early beers were often really thick, like more of a gruel, like a soupy oatmeal, and drinking straws were used so that you wouldn't get the chunky bits. How gross is that? According to Wikipedia, though, in ancient Mesopotamia, the majority of brewers were probably ladies. Brewing was a fairly well-respected occupation during the time. And then at some point, it became less chunky and, I guess, more manly from a societal standpoint. Brian Edge wants to know, is it true that there's a hops shortage or an impending one? And if so, what effect would that have on the brewing industry? There certainly was. Uh, okay. I think, was it Yakima? Six, ten years ago, somewhere in that range. Uh, one warehouse had, I think, one-third of the entire United States hop um, harvest in oh, wow. just the one building, and it burnt down. Oh, my so, God. overnight, everyone's scrambling and hosed. Um... Yeah, so that immediately bumped beer prices up, and they just have never really gone down. How insane is that? Okay, well, evidently it happened again just this past December in another hops warehouse in Yakima. Now, before you open up your own arson investigation detective agency, apparently these things just happen. Acids in the hops break down, and the hops heat up to the point where they just burst into flames. So things like this are why beer can cost you some money. Is it cheaper to brew your own beer? It, yeah, totally. Um, depends on what you throw into it. Mm. If you're throwing in like rice syrup solids as your base fermentable, that's fairly cheap. Okay. But you're not going to get a lot of flavor out of that. And so you get what you pay for and you get what you pay to put into it too. PJ Ander wants to know, what's happening to a beer when I bury it in my yard and wait to drink it for several years? Uh, it's probably not going to taste all that good. Okay. Uh, it's just because of the aging cycle. It, yeah. It's not good. Uh, time is not good to beer. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of places that uh, on their the label is best yesterday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and which is totally true. I mean, the best way to have the best beer is keep it cold and drink okay. it fast. Uh, I mean, some beers are meant to age, like a barley wine. Side note: I did not know what barley wine was. I pretended to during the interview, but I just looked it up, and it's technically a beer. It just has such a high alcohol concentration, like 8 to 12%, that it's called a wine. So, barley wine, it's barely wine. We did a flight of barley wine, our old crusty. I think the oldest bottle we opened was 20 years old. Oh, yeah, And we jumped every four years. So good. Okay. It was so good. But that's on porpoise. That's on that was totally on purpose. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If you bury it in your yard, you're going to have incredible temperature fluctuations. Uh, hell, if, you, if it freezes, you might just shatter that bottle. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So okay. that would be my concern on that one. <laughs> All right. So no buried treasure. Um, Jude, no. Kenny wants, Jude Kenny wants to know, is there a particular region in the U.S. that's favorable for open fermentation? Like, are there better airborne yeast in certain regions? No. Well, yeah, it depends on what is around you. I mean, if you're by orchards and a lot of agriculture, mm -hmm. there's just a lot more stuff on those leaves, oh, okay. um, especially yeast. Uh, so, I mean, if you're near a vineyard, there's a ton of yeast that lives outside, outside of grapes on the surface of them. Mm -hmm. That stuff's going to get flown off in the wind. 
Uh, so you got a better chance of at least getting a yeast. But capturing good ones. Yeah. Well, also bad ones. So that's a mixed bag. <laughs> oh, that's risky. <laughs> it is super risky. Uh, I mean, open fermentations are very. They're just risky because you don't know what you're going to get. And you're also going to get a lot of bacteria. Okay, quick aside. In 2013, Rogue Brewery was looking to make a beer with a wild yeast. And they tried some open fermentations in some nearby orchards, but didn't come up with much. They were like, "Mm." so it's a semi-joke. They tried to culture some yeast using 12 beard hairs of their brewmaster. This wild yeast, the wildest of yeasts, really ended up being a pretty good fit to culture. And genetically, they found out it was a hybrid between the brewery's Pac-Man yeast and some new strain. So they made a beer out of it. They put the beer on the market and people liked it, saying it had a sweet, bready, pineapple-y and oddly olive-like notes. So the idiom to get a wild hair will never be the same to me. But you can open, ferment, or try wild strains. It just might not be for beginners. Is it better to get a kit and try to culture something and see what happens? It is. Definitely, if you're just getting started, buy something that's already cultured. And that way you can't really screw it up. Okay. (laughs) You can. Start slow. But, yeah, get into it. And then to culture your own yeast, that's like just jumping in. Okay. That's a couple steps. But in general, near an orchard would be a good place for open fermentation. Okay. Yeah. Um, Carrie Stewart wants to know, do craft brewers maintain their own hops and yeast strains like proprietary blends, or are they like sourdough starters that get passed around and shared among other brewers? Um, So uh, you can buy Pac-Man. Pac-Man? Yeah, you can actually go buy the yeast that we use from the majority of our beers and Mm -hmm. use it in a homebrew. Yeah, but it is, like, something that we definitely use. Uh, Others, I think Beard was the only one that was proprietary. Uh, We don't do that here, but a lot of breweries will. They will make their own yeast and keep it completely in-house. They'll go from frozen culture all the way to pitch and use that and never have to buy yeast from anywhere else. So, remember, to pitch just means to add yeast. There's so many terms. But now you can throw them around like you know what they mean. Old word over here will not blow your cover. Sarah Nichelle Welch wants to know, why do beers have different percentages of alcohol to them? Uh, Different styles, it's appropriate, and it will match better with the flavor profile, the balance of it. So some will have a little bit more malt, and that can handle a little more alcohol or a little more sugar that can handle more alcohol. It it does change up the mouthfeel as well. And then, so mouthfeel is the viscosity, and Mm -hmm. bubble pane is the carbonation. Yeah. These are good terms. Any other weird terms that I should know about? Oh, let's see. uh, Drinkability. What the hell does that mean? Exactly. So that's why I had to take it off the sensory form because everyone kept like, well, yeah, I could pound six of these. That's not what that means. So drinkability does not mean poundability, but rather what is the arc of the beer when you first, first take a sip and then when it warms up a little on your tongue and then the lingering aftertaste. And is it all good? Great. That's drinkability. Also, while editing this, I started to imagine that Quentin was a Muppet. I think his voice lends itself well to Muppetness. Just picture it. He has a high degree of listenability. When you're having to test beers for your job, are you spitting them or are you getting hammered at two in the afternoon? For well, so <laughs> good call on the time. That's actually when we do it. Uh, no, we only give two ounces and six samples, well, eight samples at max. So okay. at most you've got 10 ounces and you're not getting hammered. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, nobody walks around here annihilated afterwards. And there's always spit cups. You always have to give spit cups just in case. Just in case someone wants to. Just in case. Seems insulting. Um, (laughs) 
Stefan Titus wants to know, uh, how do you keep your records organized? And are you a naturally organized person? We did talk about your cleanliness, but how do you... Yeah, right. Do you have logbooks? What's uh, happening? So how do you keep track of millions of yeast pets? Or I guess livestock, if you want to look at them that way. Yeah, no, so it's it depends on... It, every company does it a little different. We're still on the Excel paper okay. route. And we definitely want to get away from that as soon as possible because it, it is kind of a nightmare of this Excel file labeled this and yada yada. I mean, Excel is great for what it does it's not a good database yeah it can't handle a lot of data but databases on your christmas list lab information management system is on my wish list caitlin plate wants to know are food scientists common to find working in breweries or is it still overrun by a lot of engineers uh she's a future food scientist who would love a job at a brewery <laughs> fishing smiley face <laughs> uh you know actually there's more and more uh universities actually coming out with specific brewing programs oh yeah uh it, when i was going to Undergrad, I really wasn't thinking of brewing right off the gate. I was thinking of med school, and then I realized I didn't like people that much. <laughs> uh, and then I was like, all right, what am I going to do with a microbiology degree? And so I hopped into food science because I just, you could be an ice cream scientist. Come on. You can do that? Hells yeah. Somebody's got to do that. Actually, ice cream is really complex as a food base. It is a good jack of all trades degree. To do food science, you've got physics, microbiology, chemistry, and just and, and a lot of sensory. So you can kind of walk in and, and to anywhere. Oh, this is a good question about selecting a beer. Becca wants mm. to know, with a vast number of beers these days, how do I navigate them all? My BF, either best friend or boyfriend, um, and I were talking last night, and he said there are too many beers. So much is good that nothing is standing out anymore. So how does one make choices in this oversaturated market of local breweries, microbreweries, and limited editions? Too much of a good thing? What's what's to be done? Uh, pick a brewery. Oh. Just stick there. Uh, yeah. I mean, Rogue has everything you need. Kidding aside, both Jake and Quentin essentially say, try to fund the local guys. That's one angle. Two more questions. Um, what do you hate about your job or your life or brewing or yeast or is there a certain moment yeah. Of your day, or is there a thing you're fuck this? Yeah, there's one moment every damn morning when I show up and I have to open the incubator and look at those petri dishes. We got anything? Yeah, God, I hope not. Uh, I mean, it really basically the way I set up the, the quality program, it's if something grows, it probably shouldn't have been there mm. unless it was the yeast we were looking for. And that's when we were making the beard yeast or beard beer. That bastard, it was technically a wild yeast, and so it was resistant to all the plates I would put it on. If I didn't know exactly what it looked like, that crusty little bastard, uh-huh. uh, I would have a freak out, I, like a conniption fit. Like, we've got a wild yeast, and it's gone through the package line, and oh my god, every gasket in the building is going to have to be completely replaced, and we're going to be shut down for weeks. And I'd have that little moment. By the time a, something could grow on a Petri dish, it could be in North Carolina. So for quality control, which is a huge part of Quentin's job, he has to keep reference samples of every batch that goes into a bottle or a can so he can verify in case they do have an issue with one. So they have an area of the brewery that's like a library of beers, and they have samples of a bunch of recent brews in the lab. So when you open up that thing, you're just hoping. It's like anxiety. Yeah, I don't want to smell anything funky. That's for damn sure. One of the things that might be funky is something called 4-ethylphenol, which is created by a spoilage yeast. What does that sound like? Poop. Okay. Yeah, it's like straight poop. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many reasons why you don't want to smell that in the morning. Or baby vomit or uh, (laughs) Britannomyces is a really, really bad one uh, because it's just a bugger to get rid of if we ever had it. Um, It's horse blanket and Band-Aid. 
Mm. And Barnyard. Oh. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of bad. Uh, And it it has shut down wineries. So, I mean, there's a hit list of crap I don't want to ever see in this brewery. (laughs) That's one of them. Yeah, it's on my shit list. What's the best part of your job? Uh, The complete randomness of the day. Well, I mean, I've got it structured. So when it is stand out and like uh, that's really really awesome but i never know what new project can throw at me <laughs> so i get pulled in all sorts of different directions and i kind of have to be the master of all around here i think quentin's trying to say that he likes the variety even though it's part i asked the level 10 spirits wizard jake holshu and he said that the coolest thing about being a distiller is when he hosts a cocktail event or a whiskey release and he gets to see a whole room of people enjoying themselves as part of the fruits of his labor or I guess the spoiled fruits of his labor put in a good way. He says that's more rewarding for me than drinking himself. Although Jake also referenced that meme, um, the, this is what my friends think I do. This is what my parents think I do. This is what I actually do. And he says what he actually does is clean. He says whenever you look at brewing or distilling, controlling yeast and bacterial growth is so important that brewers are almost just glorified dishwashers. I'm going to quote him directly. He said, I mean, we just clean, 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 sanitize, clean, and then we clean, then we sanitize and clean, and then we sanitize. Quentin, of course, echoed this fact of zymology. So like, I don't know if you're aware of this, but 90% of a brewer's job is cleaning stuff. I just heard that. <laughs> it is totally true. Uh, industry-wide, turnover is pretty high because mm. everyone's like, I'm going to work at a brewery and I'm going to make beer. So I mean, somebody's got to clean those kegs. Somebody's got to make the cardboard box and otherwise the whole thing collapses. And so you can never complain about working too hard because somebody else is <laughs> doing another really hard job, especially around here because... Yeah, yeah, you are cleaning stuff. You're removing stuff. You're lifting kegs. You're not That's just not kicking light. back on a porch drinking beer all day. If you had any advice <laughs> advice for someone who wants to be a professional brewer or a professional food scientist in general, what's the most important piece? And then I'll oh. let you go since I've been asking you one million questions. Uh, <laughs> last week I was here 15 hours on Friday, so oh don't even worry about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is get into a lab. Or get into whatever you think you're going to do um, as soon as possible. Find out what your passion is. Get involved as soon as possible. Will you ever call yourself a zymologist? Um, I think you should start. I don't know. I love that you can call yourself the minister of truth or a wizard, but a zymologist is a stretch. I don't know. Well, you're the most knowledgeable zymologist I've ever met, so cheers (laughs) to that. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm glad we can nerd out. Cheers to yeast. Yeah, absolutely. And everything else in there. Don't say that. To see photos of me and Quentin Sturgeon, you can head to my Instagram, at Ologies. The podcast is also on Twitter, at Ologies, and I'm on both as Allie Ward with one L. Thank you so much to Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch again for hooking this interview up and driving me to Newport and hanging out and getting Dutch Brothers coffee and burgers and to Jay Colshue and Quentin Sturgeon for the fungus chat and the really memorable We'll Never Forget tour. Thank you also to everyone for supporting on Patreon. Again, it's an independent podcast and you can become a patron for as little as 25 cents an episode and you can have your questions asked to the ologists. You can also support the podcast by getting yourself some Ologies merch, like some awesome shirts and hats and totes and pins. That's at ologiesmerch.com. You can join up with other Ologites in the Facebook group. Thank you to 
Ernie for adminning. And thank you, as always, to Stephen Ray Morris for doing a bang-up job editing as I record these asides several days later than usual because I was traveling for a family emergency and my folks were stuck in a bit of a blizzard up north and I got hella behind. Um, Thank you again so much for listening. If you like the podcast, you can always support for free by rating and reviewing on iTunes. That helps so much. And as a thank you for sticking it through to the credits, I usually reward you with one heinous secret from my life. And I'm going to tell you two. Number one, I love eating smoked oysters from a can. I think they're good. I love them. And two, the last few houses and apartments I've lived in, I've written notes and I've tucked them into hidden places. And I always wonder when someone will find them. And I hope at least like a decade goes by. Because if you find like a two-month-old wistful farewell note, it's this kind of embarrassing. Like if you're pulling away in the moving truck and like the new tenant finds this like it's the year 2018 and i used to live here note like with still wet ink tucked behind a cupboard that's just embarrassing but i do wonder if anyone's found any of the notes i've hidden in any of the apartments or houses i lived in and i also wonder if there are any notes lurking behind any weird floorboards around me right now. Isn't that weird? Have you ever done that? Anyway, and this is now 2022 me. I'm just popping back in to say thank you for listening to these encores uh, as I grieve and get through funeral planning for my dad, who once building us a house when we lived in Tahoe wrote a note that he hid on a board in a wall. And in 2019, my sister Janelle happened to take a day trip happened to see that they were remodeling that house and happened to talk to the owner outside who had found the board like a week or so before and saved it. So he gave her the board. And for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary in 2019, my sister gifted them that like a time capsule from their past. We all freaked out and we cried a lot. And my parents were actually building a small cottage in my sister's yard to live out their their final days this past few months. And it's due to be finished in a few weeks. And my dad's goal was to sit on the deck and drink a glass of wine before he passed away. And he almost made it, but we're going to be hanging that board that my sister found somewhere in the cottage. So I guess I got a thing for hanging notes or hiding notes in places. Um, Thank you all so much for the Critter Picks for Grand Pods. And I hope you're out there having a tiny ice cream and enjoying the day. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois.